Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast, greatbighistory.com. Today's episode is World War I from 1914 to 1919, though we have two different stages from 1914 to 1917 and from 1917 to 1919. Um, the thing about the First World War is it's not one war. It's actually a lot of different wars. There's France versus Germany, Germany versus Russia, Russia versus Austria versus Serbia. There's Britain versus Germany for control or at least freedom of Belgium. And Britain versus the Ottoman Turks for control of the Middle East. There's also Italy versus Austria. That's from 1914 to 1917 alone. After 1917, there's the U.S., the United States versus Germany and Austria for democracy and a little bit of capitalism. There's Russia against itself. And there's kings versus democracy or democracy versus kings everywhere. So as you can see... It's a mess, and this is going to contribute to why it's so deadly, so destructive. The First World War is different. It is a watershed. It, it changes everything in this course for the rest of this course is affected by the First World War. Everything is a result of the trauma of First World War. We are still in the trauma of the First World War. So why? Let's get to it. What are our causes? Well, the first is German reunification, or German unification, since Germany was never unified, scares France. And what France wants is revenge for 1870. What happened in 1870? The German state, the German country of Prussia, with its, home, with its German homeboys, invaded France and crushed it. And then Prussia went to its German homeboys and said, hey, Germans, how will we make a country? And I lead it. And the homeboys went, well, you know, uh, we've been independent for like a thousand years. And Prussia said, yeah, but I got all the guns and I'm awesome. And we just won. And those German states said, yeah, OK, we're cool. And so, boom, Germany. We get a new Germany. We get a, a united Germany right in the middle of Europe. That means it bumps into everybody. Where Germany used to be weak in the 1640s, my Swedes, the Swedes I do my dissertation on, invaded Germany and conquered the boop out of it. Move here, move there, burn this. Burn that. The French did it. Russians did it. The English do it. Germany was weak. And now, out of nowhere, Germany is strong. It, this is the Charles Atlas story. He's the weakling at the beach who gets sand kicked in his face and everyone laughs at him. And he goes away and he works out. And the next summer, everyone's like, yeah, where is, where's that weakling? And then Charles Atlas comes in and he's ripped. It's like the Hulk. He's like, oh, I am Charles Atlas. And they're like, oh, I thought you were a weak, scary thing. You were nobody. You were a little child. And he's like, no, I am Charles Atlas. I will kill you. I am awesome. And that's Germany. 
out from nowhere comes the most, the largest, most populated, the richest country in Europe, in continental Europe, because there's still small little England, which is richer, but boom, Germany. Plus, German industrialization and its navy scare Britain. So German unification scared France because it's on its border. German industrialization made Germany rich, plus it built a navy out of what's called dreadnoughts, which means fearless. They're, they're the super battleships of the day, which only Britain had. Britain was like, we have dreadnoughts. We're so awesome. We could blow up everything. And the Germans said, well, what about ours? We just built this. How do you like it? And the British go, oh, they look a lot like ours, and they're kind of scary. And the Germans go, yeah, and they also have computers, and they're really smart, and they actually move, have bigger engines than yours do. And the British are like, that's not so good for us because we live on an island. This kind of sucks. So the Germans are at once scaring France. On the left hand, they're scaring England, Britain. And then, all right, we can deal with that. We're just like a little jealous. And, but as long as nothing bad happens, there's no reason for us to fight. So what happens? The Ottoman Empire collapses. <laughs> Great. The Ottoman Empire collapses and Southeastern Europe for the first time in 500 years is up for grabs. All these little countries, Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia and Romania and Bulgaria, are all, suddenly all these dinky little countries that have been owned since the 12 or 1300s are up for grabs. Who can get them? Who wants them? Austria wants them. Austria's like, we used to own them back in the day. Russia's like, dude, they're all Slavs. They're my cousins. They're my homeboys. I want them. And Germany is like, okay, we don't have any history of owning them. But dude, they're going to want to buy our stuff. And so um, we want to we wanna not own them, but we want them to be our allies. So they buy all of our stuff. And so it's an Austria versus Russia versus Germany for whoever can get in there and get the most uh, diplomatic and or military and or control presence in Europe. What does this equal? The French and the Russians get together. Now remember, uh, Napoleon, the French and the Russians don't get along. The French Revolution is anti-Russian. Why? Because the Russians like having a giant empire and a super powerful king. And the French Revolution hates empires and hates kings. But they get together. They hook up. Why? Because Germany and Austria are worse. They like Germany and Austria worse. The Russians hate the Austrians. The French hate the Germans. And so they get together like, dude, man, Austria sucks. And the French are like, yeah, you think Austria sucks, Russia? Germany really sucks. And the Russians are like, yeah, they suck too. Hey. Want to be friends? We could talk about how much Germany and Austria suck. And the French are like, dude, that would be awesome. And if we get into a fight with them, we'll totally have each other's back. And Russia's like, yeah, we'll make an alliance. And that whole thing where, I, where Napoleon tried to burn down Moscow and then we starved you all to death, we'll forget that, man, bygones. Boat drinks. And so they let the past be the past, which is a big deal. Like, this is a diplomatic revolution. The British and the French, who have fought, they had 200-year wars. One in the 1200s to the 1300s. And then again in the 15, 16, 1700s. They, the, 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 
the British and the French are always at war. They hate each other. And now they're like, yeah, hey, you know what? Um, yeah, um, you know, you're, you're not so cool. You're not so bad. The Germans are worse. And what this all means is that a small war, a French-German war, or an Austrian-Russian war, or an Austrian-Serbian war, is going to be a huge war. There are no more small wars. Because it's going to be a pylon. It's like, it's, it's like wrestling. It's like... Um, um, where they all... Everyone gets in. Royal Rumbles. Everybody's getting in. Everyone's fighting each other. Ah, It's going to be huge. There are no more small wars. It's all going to be huge. So why go to war in the first place? Well, first of all, so now we know it's going to be a huge war. So obviously nobody wants to fight it, right? Wrong. Everybody wants to fight it. Everyone's like, oh, I cannot wait to shoot some Germans. And the Germans are like, oh, I'm, I'm going to Kimbo. I got my left hand at France, my right hand. I'm going to be shooting. I'm going to be boop, 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 boop. I'm like Neo in the Matrix. I am going to be shooting uh, France on my left and Russia on my right. I'm going to be awesome. And the Orsians are like, oh, those Slavs. I have waited 300 years to beat up those Serbs. I have waited so, they have been such a pain. I am going, ooh, I can't wait. Ooh, this is going to be good. War will solve those problems. Remember all those problems we just talked about? War will solve them. And so you get militarism. The idea that the army, that military might, will solve the problems. And this comes out of Nietzsche and Freud. Nietzsche, philosopher, German philosopher, says, has the philosophy of the will to power. This comes kind of out of Darwin's survival of the fittest. The idea is those who are powerful act, and they exert their power on others. So that the world is made up of the weak and the strong, and you'd much rather be the strong than the weak. And war is the way to determine who is who. Who is the strong and who is the weak. And Freud goes about it in a psychological way. He says, man is violent. Man is violent. Man likes killing things. Hunting is simply war on nature. Men have always fought. Men are violent. They're competitive. But you can't be violent in a civilized society. We're having this debate right now about guns. There, are a lot, there is a good number of people in America, 20 30% of Americans or so, who say, I want to have a gun. I want to be able to shoot somebody. I want to carry that weapon wherever I want. And then there's the majority of people, they are the majority of people, who say, dude, I don't want you to have a gun. I don't want to have a gun. We can't be walking down the street. You can't go to Chipotle with a machine gun. No, you can't order. I cannot order my my." Barbacoa with you and a machine gun next to me. That's oppression. You can't be violent in a civilized society. I may want to punch you in the face. I don't punch you in the face. And so, but for Freud, that feeling backs up. And has to be released some way, in some form. That psychic energy, like it's like the first rule of thermodynamics, psychic energy is, neither, is not created nor destroyed. It's simply transferred. 
into something else. So man is violent. He needs to be violent. He will need a violent outlet. Sport is one way. The Olympics, football, competition is one way. This is war without violence. Uh, the, the Romans knew this. The Romans had gladiatorial. They had single combat war. They're like, hey, you could watch little wars happen and, partici and participate viscerally, but not actually. And Freud's like, we can do this too. And sport becomes a major competition. So it's not a surprise that the, the Olympics are invented in this age, in 1896, the first Olympics. It's, it's not a surprise because here's, here's a way countries can compete with each other without shooting each other. The Olympics. Three, as we talked about, the crisis of masculinity. Men are soft, decadent, they're feminine. In fact, because the women are demanding the right to vote and they're organizing and they're protesting and they're in the streets and they're breaking stuff and they're burning shit down, women are tougher than the men are. Mr. Banks is not a tough man. This is not a warrior. This is not a Dothraki, nomadic, Mongolian horse lord. He's not a hun. He's a banker. He's got soft hands. He's counting money all his life. That's not a real man. So you have this crisis of masculinity. That men are soft. They're decadent. They're feminine. They are gay. Homosexual. Or if not actually homosexual, they're kind of homosexual. So the, the two get linked. Feminine and, and gay get linked. Feminine and homosexual get linked because you're not really a man. You're not man-man. Tough man. And that's, they get linked together here. More than they had before. Four, you get nationalism. Ethnic groups want freedom and they want their own country. I'm Serbian. I want a Serbia. I'm Croatian. I'm Croatian. I'm French. I already have a France. Which breaks up internal divisions. Because what if you're Austria and you have 15 different nations in your country? You're an empire. Russia has even more than that. Who knows how many different peoples there are? Latvians and Balts, Estonians, and we haven't they, people who haven't even been invented yet. And then you go out to Siberia, or at least to Asia, and you have all the Central Asian Turkish peoples and all that. Like, what if all of them want their own country? An empire can't exist. So Austria is made up of is run by the Austrian Germans, but they're a minority in their own country, in their empire. Their empire has Czechs and Slovaks and Serbs and Slavs and Croats and Hungarians and and if they all want their own country, then Austria can't exist. The Ottomans are the same way. They have Turks, but they have Greeks and Serbs and Slavs and uh, 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 Arabs and Egyptians and, and people who haven't even figured out there's something else yet. So people who haven't figured out, hey, we have something in common, which we're different from them. So nationalism is threatening to break apart these, these empires, especially in the East. So what happens? Very famously, there's the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in August 1914. Um, no, he's assassinated in June 28th, 1914 or so. Um, but, but basically, what happens is the countries declare war on each other. They have a fight. Austria attacks Serbia. Germany invades France. The UK defends France, sends an army to France. Russia invades Germany. In August 1914. So it is on. Everybody's versus everybody. It's a Royal Rumble. 
And there's the big battle, the battle everybody wanted to have, the Battle of the Marne. And the idea is, we're going to win the Battle of the Marne, Paris will fall, France will surrender, the British will go home, everything will end. Home by Christmas. It'll be a six-week war. Nobody will die. Or so few people will die that they'll all be heroes. And what happened is, the Germans lost. Paris is saved. The result is a stalemate in the West, and the men immediately start digging in because artillery starts pounding them. What these guys had invented in industrialization were giant guns that can shoot from very far away. And when death hits you, comes, drops on you from the sky, you, you, you run, but you can't run. There's nowhere to go, so you dig in. And you get the trenches. And that's going to become the trench warfare. And pretty much where they start, where they dig in in 1914, is where they'll end in 1919. In 1915, we have the invention of, of poison gas at Ypres. This was supposed to make a breakthrough. Like the idea is we'll drop poison gas on their trench. They'll die People will be freaked out. They'll run away because it's a huge new technology and we'll charge in. It'll be a, we'll, there'll be a hole. We'll charge through. We'll burst through onto Paris. Woo, we win. And what happened is it didn't work. It, it didn't work. Poison gas kills people, but it doesn't create the breakthrough to, to break through the trenches. In 1916, the war changes from one looking through a breakthrough for a big battle that will win the war to attrition. We are going to kill as many of the other mother as possible. And you get Verdun. Now remember, if you took my History 101 class, we talked about the Greeks, where you had one 20-minute battle, and it was over. Phalanx versus phalanx, 20 minutes, boom, one side runs away. War is over, battle is over, war is over, we make a treaty, boom, done. The Romans, a day of fighting, a couple hours. Hack piece, hack people to pieces, boom. And that's more or less battles. Every once in a while, you get a massive two-day battle. And I mean, these are so massive, like, like, like... The, the Romans write about them as like the vi the fighting is so vicious that the the dead fought in the sky with each other. They couldn't stop fighting. Like a two day battle is like blew people's minds that you could fight for that long. Verdun is a one year battle where every day, every hour of that day, you were in the midst of battle, a universe of battle. A hundred and fifty thousand people will be killed. That's a that's a large American city will be killed on each side at Verdun, on the German and the French side. The Somme, H O M M E, also in nineteen sixteen, is a German British battle. Sixty thousand British casualties on the first day, and they had six more months of it. One American soldier died in Iraq. It made the news back home in 2003, 2004, 2005. This was 60,000. 
in one day. You can't read that many names in 24 hours. And it went on for six more months. In 1916, you get the Battle of Gallipoli, where the British tried to try to conquer Constantinople. They used a lot of Australian and New Zealand troops who got butchered. Now, there's a lot of like, no, really, the British suffered too. And, but they were British officers for the Australians and New Zealanders, and they were sent into this maelstrom, and they were butchered. It was such a terrible battle that basically Australia and New Zealand afterwards said, yeah, 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 we're kind of done. And they wanted to be their own countries at this point. It was the demand to, to leave kind of the Commonwealth, or at least the empire. We'll be in the Commonwealth, but we're going to run our own things from now on. We have brave soldiers, and they're wasted by stupid British commanders who didn't care. The narrative is the British commanders knew it was a stupid idea, and they didn't care because it wasn't British troops. They were Australian and New Zealanders, and so they sent them in, and they got butchered by machine guns. Um, Gallipoli is Normandy if Normandy failed. That's what it is. That's what it looks like. Gallipoli is a failed Normandy. Men stuck on the beach being shot to pieces by machine guns. And the Australians and New Zealanders back home said, F this, man, we're done. We ain't, we ain't giving you troops anymore. Now, they'll continue the fight, but the demands will start coming for independence, that we will have a say where we will send our troops, how we will send our troops, how many troops we will send. And so this is how devastating, how bloody this, these battles are, that not only is it affecting armies, it's infecting entire countries, how they identify themselves, how they think about themselves. In 1917, Russia falls apart into the Russian Revolution. So traumatized is it by the casualties of the First World War and the idea that the government won't stop fighting, you get the Russian Revolution to overthrow the government, to end the war. Meanwhile, the United States enters the war and goes, hello, Europe, we have arrived. Ha ha. To fight Germany. The Germans, knowing that this is going to happen, throw in 1918 one final offensive at the West. They have defeated the Russians. They take their troops. They send them West. They're going to make one giant heave for Paris. And it fails. Ran out of steam, ran out of energy, and the German army began to collapse. The counterattacks from the fresh American troops, but also the veteran British and French troops, causes the German army to collapse. Um, Germany is about to be invaded, and there's the armistice at 11, November 11th, 11-11 at 11 a.m. I think it's 11-11 a.m., but... The armistice at 11, 11, 19, 18. What are our results? 17 million dead. 20 million wounded. This is what will be termed lost generation. Not just physically lost, but psychologically lost. Entire classes of British universities wiped out. An entire elite generation was wiped out at the Somme in one day. 20 million will be wounded. Why? The technology was far ahead of the tactics. The machine gun, artillery, flamethrower, barbed wire, all made the defense better than the offense. 
war now equals it sucks. People did not come out of the First World War. Oh, most people do not. We'll talk about the group. We will talk about the group that comes out of the First World War thinking it was awesome. Don't worry. They are going to be important. But most people come out. If you read your Fitzgerald, you read your Hemingway, you read Yeats, you read Elliot, you read uh, basically anybody writing about the war in the 1920s, life sucks. War sucks. The hierarchy failed. The people who were in charge, who were supposed to know better, got men killed. God is dead, Nietzsche. Because how could God have allowed this bloodshed to keep going? Civilization oppresses. I didn't want to fight in the war. I was made to fight in the war. This is Freud in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents. I didn't want to go. I was made to go. I was forced to go. I was a conscript. That war and life suck. All the money we had got sucked into the war. All the young men, something like 80% of the French young men, the young men under the age of like 25 or 30 in 1920 were dead or wounded. 80%. Like, that's insane. Compare that to the Iraq and Afghanistan war. We've had an Iraq war that lasted uh, 2003 to 2008, roughly, 2009. And we've had a 15-year war in Afghanistan. And less than 1% of Americans have fought in either of those wars. Still, I, 15 years later, ask, do I have veterans in my class? I'll get one. If I get two, it's huge. And this is an 80-person class. Two is like, whoa. And if I got three, holy shnikes. Three veterans? In, out of 80? This is the opposite. Everybody was in it. Everybody was in it. And everybody was wounded by it. If not physically, psychologically. The entire Western civilization is traumatized by this. So Yeats, the second coming, he writes in 1919, turning and turning in the widening gear, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things full apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. That's not happy. That's not Coleridge. That's not the romantics. That is, the world is falling apart. The center cannot hold. There is no hierarchy. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. The falcon takes orders from the falconer. Now it can't. It is on its own. Hierarchy has failed. It's even worse when you get to Elliot in The Hollow Man in 1925. And this is pre-H-bomb. Remember, it's pre-H-bomb, pre-hydrogen bomb. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang but a whimper. These are not happy poems. And there are more poems. There's the war poets that talk about death and disease and horror and blood and guts and brains and they are the lost generation. Results. 
So we have an entire society, society traumatized, especially the men are traumatized by their experience in the war. We get women's liberation. Why? Because they're going to work. All the men are going to go off the war. Remember I said 80% of the young men? Well, who's going to do the work while the young men are at war getting, their, getting blown up? Women are. Women in every country are going to fill those spaces. They're going to work during the war. They're going to sacrifice. They're going to become nurses. They're going to give stuff to the government that it needs. They're going to give their children, their husbands... When the war is over, they say, I gave. I gave all I could give. I gave everything the government asked me to give. This is, by the way, you should understand this. This is how nursing became a women's profession. Nursing was a man's profession because it involved nakedness and blood. And there needed to be so many people that they took in women. This is very true in the American Civil War that the profession of nursing became a woman's profession. It's only now, in the 21st century, changing into an equitable. Because for a long time, men fled nursing, and they either became doctors, or they just didn't go into medicine. And now they're, they're going back into it in large numbers. But this is the change. This is where women become nurses, and men stop being nurses. Where they had been nurses before. Um, so they sacrificed and governments promised welfare now we have to talk about what that means in a second but they promised stuff here's the thing it's 1915, 1916 we have Verdun going on we have the psalm about to start we need men every government needs men in the army so they go to the men and they say, join the army. Be a man. And the men look at what's going on in Verdun. Let's call it the early days of the psalm. They look at the early days of the psalm and they say, F that, man. I'm going to get killed. What are you, insane? I'm not going to join this. This is crazy. If I'm dead, who, I understand. And they go, whoa, 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 what about the country? What about the nation? You have to save France. You have to save Germany. He goes, yeah, I understand that. I love my country. But I like my my wife and my kids more. And if I die, what's going to happen to them? If I die, they're penniless. Who's going to give them money? Who's going to put food on the table? Who's going to raise them? Who? Who? And the government says, we'll do it. We promise. We will take care of them. We will give them education. We will give them money. We will get, we will make, if you get killed and we, and let's be honest, you're going to get killed. We all know that. If you get killed, we'll take care of them. And the men said, sure. All right, I'll do it. I'll join. And the men and the women, especially the women, said, how do I know you'll keep your promise? And the government said, trust us. When have you ever not trusted the government? When have we ever not, not followed the rules uh, of what promises what we say. Hey, we are promising to take care of your children in health care and education and all these really expensive things. I'm sure after the war we'll totally be totally cool with keep paying for those totally expensive things. And the women said, yeah, no. 
You need us to work in the factories. We want to have a say. And we want to hold you to your promises. Because the men are going to be dead. The men can't do it. We're going to hold you to your promises. And so in the UK, women get the right to vote in 1919. In the USA, it's 1920. From 1917 to 1919, almost every country in Europe gets women get the rights to vote. The two weird ones are Switzerland, which did not fight in the war, and women don't get the right to vote till like 1972. And that's pretty much why women, women's lives don't change because of the war in the First World War or the Second World War. Switzerland does not fight in either war. And France. And I don't, I can't explain France because France has the worst casualty rates, the worst, you would think in France. So it has to do with something with the patriarchy. I, I don't know. I'm not enough of a French historian of this time period to tell you. But women will get the right to vote after, in 1945, after the Second World War. That same argument will be like, uh, yeah, we need, we need rights now. We need to have a say. Um, but for almost every country in Europe that fought in the First World War, women will get the right to vote within a year or two after, after the war. Even in the United States. And the United States didn't suffer. The United States made money. Its casualty rates were pretty low. I mean, percentage-wise, they're high. Because when the Americans show up, they don't know what they're doing. And they run right into German troops who have had five years on the front. I mean, four years on the front. So they got cut to ribbons. But not a large percentage of Americans fought in the First World War. It was, it was over within 18 months. If it had gone on two, three, four years, you'd imagine a major change. And still, women get the right to vote in 1920. We get new countries in Eastern Europe. And almost all of them are weak democracies. And so what we get is conflict and violence. And Europe is a mess in the 1920s. From 1918 to like 1925, Europe is a mess with revolutions and assassinations and um, just flat out wars. Turks versus the Greeks, Greeks versus the Bulgarians. Um, Turks in, in revolutions in Russia, uh, civil war in Russia, the Turks uh, committing a genocide against the Armenians, um, Europe is a mess because there's no order. The, the big countries that had run Europe before have collapsed. You get the League of Nations. Great. Here's a place we're all going to talk it out. We're going to make sure that people don't go to war. We're going to figure this out. All the countries will get together and we're going we're gonna to have we're gonna have rap sessions, man. It's going to be cool. We're going to work out our problems before we murder each other because we didn't do this before. And then the U.S. comes along and says, yeah, I know we invented the whole concept, but dude, I'm out. I'm going back across my ocean, and I'm like going to ignore you Europeans. I know I'm the richest country in the world. I know I'm the most powerful country in the world. I know I'm awesome. Good luck. Well, without the United States to like wrangle people, because they had more money, they had more troops, they had more power, Without the United States to kind of walk up like Superman and go, oh, 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 I'll take care of it, the League of Nations fails. And when the League of Nations fails, chaos is let loose. Everybody does what they want. But they do what they want because there's no one country to say, whoa, 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 We'll take care of it. This is the problem. You should understand this because every presidential system, every time we have a presidential debate, 
this co- this comes up and people will say the United States should not be the policeman of the world. Why should we pay the cost of this? And the answer is because there was a time when we were the most powerful country in the world and we said we don't want to be the policeman of the world. And what happened? Nazis. The world fell apart. Somebody has to run the world. And I don't know about you, but I'd much rather us do it than Russia, than China, than some other dictatorship do it. Or nobody, a vacuum, where everyone is at war with everyone else. You want, if you're going to run the world and get all the perks that come with running the world... you got to have the responsibilities and sacrifices, too. You have to be the policeman of the world. And that's okay. Because we get a whole lot of perks, man. You know, think about the Roman Empire. Think about the British Empire. They didn't go, oh, you know what? Running the world sucks. No, they went, running the world is awesome. It costs some money. It's a bit of responsibility. But you know what? I'd much rather do it than be conquered by some other people. Being conquered sucks. Running the world is awesome. And we know what happens when the United States is powerful and decides not to run the world. And that's the 1920s. Good in rich places, a disaster in poor places. Chaos, war, death, destruction. The Treaty of Versailles blames Germany. There's a lot going on. The Treaty of Versailles is a mean treaty. It's meant to be a mean treaty. Now, there's a revisionist history going on now. I've read a couple books, and they're like, you know, when you look at other treaties, no, 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 stop. Stop. The Treaty of Versailles was a mean treaty. It was meant to be a mean treaty. What the Germans thought they were going to get was it was Wilson's President Wilson's 14 points. President Wilson said there's 14 ways we're going to win the war and there's 14 ways for us to solve the world's problems. And Germany when it surrendered and it did surrender, we call it an armistice, armistice day, but they did surrender. They were defeated. Said that's that's it. We want that. Right? That means we're going to take a large chunk of Germany and make Poland out of it. We're going to do this, we're going to do that, but ultimately it was a nice, it was a fairly fair, it would have been a fairly fair treaty. Little countries would get invented. The big, Austria-Hungary would disappear as a country in the 14 points. So, you know, there was some harshness in it, but it was acceptable between a victor and a defeated. The British and the French looked at it and said, that's not tough enough. It's way not tough enough. And they created the Versailles Treaty. And it is super tough. And Wilson gave in on everything. He sold out his own treaty in order to get the League of Nations. Is the, is the general story, anyway. But it doesn't matter because the Treaty of Versailles blamed Germany and forced Germany to pay reparations. Forced Germany to pay money to Britain and France to pay for the most expensive war that had ever been fought, ever. The idea was to financially cripple Germany. What's the result? And this is why. When people are like, oh, it's not really tough. 
the Germans were pissed. You get Hitler and the Nazis. Hitler comes to power. The Nazis come to power, not by being racist. And they were racist. Don't get me wrong. They were racist. But the number one thing in, in Hitler's stuff is the treaty. I will get rid of the treaty. I will get rid of the treaty. I'll get rid of the Jews, but I'll also get rid of the treaty. And people said, yeah, he probably doesn't mean that thing about the Jews. He means it about, you know, remember during the, the 2016 campaign where President Bush would, uh, President Trump would say things. He wasn't yet, he was candidate Trump, would say things. And you would get his people who, like Kellyanne Conway, would come and go, um, you shouldn't take the you shouldn't take Trump literally. He means it figuratively, not literally. So when he means a wall to keep out Mexicans, he doesn't mean an actual wall. He means a metaphorical wall. So take what he means, not what he says. And the Germans were pissed from this. And Hitler's not the only one. Hitler is one of many parties. The communists were, were pissed. The fascists were pissed. There were lots of little parties that were like, F you, WTF, what the hell happened? And we're going to talk about what that means. But so don't, 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 don't come back with it really wasn't a bad treaty. It was a it caused World War II. Just like the f treaty of the ending the first Punic War created the second Punic War. It doesn't matter if it was on its surface really bad or mean or not. It doesn't matter because the people took it as that. The Germans wanted to fight to change that treaty. Thus, it's a bad treaty. If one side looks at the treaty and says, F you, I'm going to beat you up as soon as I get some power, that's a bad treaty. Other countries around the world, in Africa, in Asia, in India, say, hey, look at what Europe did. They're not so tough. You know, for 20 years, they've been telling us what to do. Turns out they're a mess. And they start demanding independence. And so you start to get independence movements of other peoples, black, brown, Asian peoples, against against European colonialism or European domination. Because they're like, hey, you people aren't so tough. We saw what you did. We fought with you. We fought against you. You're not so tough. We get communism in Russia, which now becomes the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. We get the Jazz Age in the USA where we're going to drink so much to forget the war. We're going to get decadence in Western Europe. Again, like the Jazz Age in, in the United States, we're going to have drink and drugs and we're going to forget the war. The USA is the richest, most powerful country in the world and it's isolated. It doesn't want to deal with the war world. It just wants to make money, suck its thumb, close its eyes, close the drapes and just do its own thing. They don't want to lead, which means you have a rudderless world and you get violence. And there are attempts to try to bring people together. There are treaties throughout the 20s, which is like, let's make some kind of order. And the United States will be part of those. But ultimately, you don't have the United States running the show. And the weak, weakened, bankrupt, bloodied French and the weakened, bankrupt, bloodied 
British will try to keep on trucking to be like, well, it's 18. We'll just pretend it's 1890 again. And it doesn't work. You get the invention of the welfare state, which is now with us. It's now, it is the European model of government. It is the American model of government. We are not a capitalist state anymore. We are a welfare state. Thank you very much. We are less than Canada or Europe, but we're still it. We ain't laissez-faire capitalism. World War I ended any notion of that. Governments are going to take care of their vulnerable citizens, especially widows and orphans. Remember what we talked about. Remember that conversation about welfare and women and the right to vote. The government is going to take care of widows, orphans, soldiers, wounded soldiers. Government will do that. Government will provide that. That brings us to communism and new forms of government. And so that will be our next um, lecture. So we did World War I. We did the results of World War I. And now we're going to do uh, government and uh, new forms. So have a good day, ladies and gentlemen. Take care.